Open your Bibles to Psalm 119. I'm not much of a uh, horticulturist. I have grown one batch of tomatoes. One time I tried to get radishes and I couldn't find them after I planted them. Somebody didn't tell me that they grew in the ground. Uh, I have roses at my house, but someone else takes care of them. I, I, I have no green thumb. I have no thumb, green or otherwise. But I am fascinated with roots. I'm not sure why. But I have a, an interest. I wrote a musing not too terribly long ago about some root system that I, that I discovered. The roots of trees suggest to me strength. And I, and I did a little bit of looking as we're looking into Psalm 119. We're going to start down there in verse number 9 in our second stanza of our study. But the root system of trees, the first tree that I was looking at was a palm tree. Because we all have palm trees around here. Did you realize that, that the roots of a palm tree don't go any deeper than about 30 inches? So what's that, a foot and a half? Now, I've got palm trees at my house that are, I don't know, 10 stories high. And they've got, they've got on 30 inches. Makes me a little nervous, you know. Um, redwoods. Love redwoods. Of course, our redwood forests are under attack right now, but uh, redwoods, yeah, their root systems go down deeper, five or six feet. But when you think about a massive, hundred-year-old tree, five to six feet doesn't seem that much. But the fascinating thing about redwoods, I'm so glad you asked me, their root system goes out uh, uh, horizontally, and it'll go maybe a hundred feet in, in all directions. And, and you'll find redwoods in stands together. And what happens is those root systems go out and they intertwine. They might be only five or six feet deep, but they're out 100 feet and they're intertwining with everybody around them. Boy, there's a whole lesson there. There's a message right there. I could preach that one. But, you know, there's a tree called a wild fig. It only shows up, I guess, in, in South Africa. That tree, their roots go down 400 feet. Wow. 400 feet, that's a long way for roots. Roots say something about the stability of a tree. And in our series, in Psalm 119, in our section, uh, the, the section called Baith, remember that it's an acrostic, which means that each stanza, each set of eight verses is going gonna, is gonna to be identified with, a, with a, a letter in the alphabet. We did all of last, well, last week. This week we're going to do Baith. And... Um, I entitled our lesson this morning, Deep Roots. Everything we're going to talk about for the next eight or ten weeks has to do with the Word of God and how important it is in our lives. And today I want to talk about having deep, deep roots through the Word of God. If I were to ask you, what is the biggest problem facing our country today, you would say things like, pandemic. Or you might say political upheaval. Or you might say, what else might you say? Uh, racial injustice. Um, and, and, a, and a host of other things. But I'm going to propose to you that the greatest problem facing all of us today and all of them out there is not racial injustice or a pandemic or a political upheaval in our culture. The greatest problem facing all of us, one way or another, is sin. Now you say, gee, I came back to, to hear a lesson on sin. How uplifting. But that last song we just sang, 
it, it correctly asks and provides an invitation. An invitation to come to a well and satisfy yourself by drinking something that will take away your thirst forevermore. Now, I'm going to guess that the majority of the people sitting looking at me right now, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's been a time and place when you drank deeply from the well. But I'm also going to bet that there are a few of you sitting there that for one reason or another came to Bible study and you're going, yeah, I don't know. There's some problems in my heart. The biggest problem is not the pandemic and it's not political unrest and it's not social injustice. It's the issue of my sin. The problem is, is that you and I do not measure up to a holy and a righteous God. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 11, he says, Be you holy, just like I am holy. You want to have fellowship with Almighty God? You need a standard, and the standard is holiness, perfection. Was anybody perfect even this morning? I can't make it to 10 o'clock perfect. Truth of the matter is, by the time my feet hit the floor and I make my first good morning to my, my friend who, who shared a house with me, I probably got a, a bad attitude. I, I, I can't make it 30 minutes. I am not perfect in any shape or form. And yet, God says, you want to spend an eternity with me? You want to drink from the well? You want satisfaction and, and joy in your heart? Be perfect. Yeah. How do we do that? We are all sinners. Romans chapter 3. Turn with me there. I want you to look at that one for just a moment. In Romans chapter 3, Paul's making a, a legal argument. He would have made a great attorney. And in chapter 3, he's going he's to convince us all that we have a need. He says, starting in verse number, oh, we'll say verse 10. Or very, very, yeah, verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have gone away. They've altogether become worthless. There's no one that does good, not even one. Then he describes them. Their throats are like open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their, are their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Drop down to verse number 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I read this problem in our, in our world. It's the same problem they had a thousand years ago. It's you and I have a problem with sin. Now, for some, it's a problem in relationship to salvation. For others, it's a, it's a problem in relationship to a theological word we call sanctification. So let's talk about salvation just for a minute. Because there may be somebody within the sound of my voice that if I ask you, if you die today and a horrible accident would occur, do you know for certain that you would spend eternity with God? And if your answer is, mm, I hope so, then this next little part is for you. Because if you were to ask me that question, not because I am righteous and not because I have any, any claim to fame, but only because... I have accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ that he hung on the cross to provide for me. I would answer that question, absolutely. I know for certain. Not based on my performance, not based on who I am, not based on what I do, but based on the gift that I have received. 
So the problem of sin in relationship to salvation is, is a sense of condemnation. There is a nagging thing that happens in the heart of a person who does not know Jesus. Now, it might nag them one way and somebody else it might nag them another way, but there is a nag. There is an ache. There is a longing. There's, there is a gap that has not been filled. Getting married doesn't fill it. Having children doesn't fill it. Having money doesn't fill it. Getting the right house doesn't fill it. There is a moment when all of that happens and they still say, mm, there's no satisfaction. There's no ultimate peace. It's because of the problem of sin. Now, some of you are saying, well, gee, why would God condemn someone? Whoa, 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 whoa. God isn't in the condemning business. In fact, the passage I put in your notes in 2 Peter says that hell was reserved for the fallen, for Satan and the fallen angels. His plan when he created hell was that was a place where the fallen angels and Satan could go. Period. Men had to raise their hand and say, I want to go with them. It is a matter of choice. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses makes that so clear. He says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. When someone does not accept the free gift of Jesus Christ for their salvation, it's because they've made a choice. No, thank you. Even a passive choice. I'm too busy. I don't know. It's still a choice. God is not running around going, zap, zap, zap. As a matter of fact, the scripture says over and over again, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. His purpose of sending his son to die on our our behalf was to say, please, all, please, all. The problem of sin can be solved. I, I have sent my son. He is going to pay it all, which is why when he hung on the cross, he declared, it is finished, done, paid in full, check. The problem with sin, though, is that if we don't receive that, we end up with a sense of condemnation. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not agile enough. I'm not a good enough mother or wife or or business person. There's There's that longing, that sense of condemnation, because there's a separation between us and Almighty God. He intended to be with us forever. If you want to know what God's intent was, read the first three chapters of Genesis. That's it, three chapters. Because he created man, and then he said, mm, you know what, it's not good for him to be alone. And he created a woman. And then he stuck him in an ideal environment, a perfect place. Now, I don't know what your ideal environment would be like, but mine would be cool. 65 would be perfect. Blue sky, mountains on one side, water, lots of water. You know, some animals running around. I don't know what the garden was like, but it was perfect. And God's intent was for them to live there in perfect harmony. They had no clothes on because there was no sense of shame. Sin hadn't even entered their mind. They were perfectly balanced. And he came in the cool of the evening and had fellowship with them. That was God's intent. That's what it was supposed to be like. So what happened? Satan came along, gave them a temptation, they fell into the temptation, and the garden was closed until heaven is opened at the other end of the story. And that gets restored. That separation that happened, that leaves that longing, where sin is penetrated and makes us go, "Mm," 
That gets resolved. That loss of fellowship was never God's idea. Sin snuck in there. Satan did his thing. And the Bible says that your iniquities or your sin has separated you from from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. It wasn't his plan to have it hidden. Sin came in and blocked it. So if you woke up this morning with an ache in your gut, a longing that isn't satisfied with your marriage or your family or your situation, your finances, your home or your position, I'm telling you, Christ is the answer. Deep roots and God's word reveals to us God's desire to be everything for us. Now, for those of you that have come to Christ and you know him as Lord and as Savior, you still need those deep roots. You still have a problem with sin. If you are honest, you sin probably this morning. You do with some regularity. I don't know what yours are. I know what mine are. I know my propensities to this or that or the other thing. You have them too. So how can we see in God's word a solution for our, and a big theological word, sanctification? Sanctification is just the process whereby the child of God, once they've come to Christ in saving faith, becomes more and more like his son. We become more and more like the Lord. That process, there's still a problem. I still have shame. When I'm impatient, or I'm, I have a sense of condemnation quick in my mind about someone that I don't have all the facts yet, and then I realize what I've done, I, I almost always literally and physically hang my head. It's shame. Oh, I didn't think that way. Oh, I was so good. I, uh. Shame is an issue for the child of God. We need to address it. it. It's a problem. There's a sense of guilt for some. You know, why why did I do that again? Why is that a repetitive thing? Guilt needs to be addressed by God's word as well. In, in, In the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there's a passage in chapter 7 that talks about good guilt and bad guilt. Good guilt leads you to repentance. It leads you to say, oh, that was wrong. I I should stop that. I will now stop that. I'm rejecting that. I'm setting it aside. Good guilt gets us going. Or stops us. Bad guilt, the kind of guilt that just, it's, I usually describe it as a, a hamster on a wheel. It doesn't go anywhere. We just stew over and over and over again. What do we need to solve that problem? We need the word of God. We need our roots to go deep. There are some natural consequences to sin, even for the child of God. You lose your temper at one of your children, watch their eyes. The light goes out. That is an awful feeling. Come on, if you're a parent, how many will join me in saying yes? Oh, come on. The rest of you are liars. You should be feeling guilty about lying. There's a moment when you lose your temper, even in just a short burst, but what's your kid's face? The the, the light goes out in their little eyes. And what what has to happen? There has to be a resolve, a, a change. There needs to be some, some, some restitution, some fixing. There are natural consequences to sin. You, 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 you steal and you get caught and you go to jail. There's a natural consequence. There are natural consequences in every area of life. And we need a solution for that sin. 
And maybe the worst of all of it for the child of God is a searing of our conscience. The Bible t- says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that, that, that there is a, a sense in which our consciences get seared like, like with a hot iron. We do it once and yeah, we feel bad about it. We do it twice and then not so bad. We do it 50 times in a row, we don't even know we did it. Our conscience gets seared. We have a problem with sin, whether we've never come to Christ and we need to come to Him for salvation, or we are kids, God's kids, we've been saved, but oh my, there are issues still to deal with, still to deal with. Which brings us to our passage in, in, uh, in uh, Psalm 119. So turn with me if you haven't already opened your Bible up. I had it, now I've lost it. It's in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, I got it. There we go. So we're in Baith, the second little section, starting with verse number nine. Let me read it. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Another way to say, how do I deal with sin? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Don't let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that have come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I call the lesson Deep Roots because it's all about God's word in dealing with sin. How can anybody stay pure? How do you not stray from his commands? How do you deal with sin? Well, you've got to stay on the path, the Bible says. Now, that word path there is kind of an interesting word. You might translate it a rut or a track. Now, let me ask you this. If you have a propensity to a certain area of sin in your life, and you do it over and over and over again, doesn't it lay down a little bit of a rut? Isn't it kind of easy to fall into that? There are ruts that, that become kind of hardened in our lives. By the way, just a side note here. Do you, do you know how wide the railroad tracks are in Great Britain? You know, between track to track, how wide they are? Look at this. Ancillary learning in Bible study. They are four foot nine inches wide. Now, anybody care to guess why they're four foot nine inches wide? More ancillary learning. Because when the railroads first started, the guys that were building railroads went out and looked where the existing paths were between village to village. And when they saw those existing paths, they noticed there were ruts in the road. And those ruts were four foot, nine inches between each other. The exact distance or the width of a Roman horse pulling a chariot. Four foot, nine inches. So they said, oh, I guess we better have our railroad four foot, nine inches apart. And today, if you get on a train in Great Britain, you're riding on a rail that's the same width as a Roman horse hauling a chariot behind you, creating a rut. Little side note there. Sorry. I like that little story. Really has nothing to do with the lesson, but I like the story. This rut I'm talking about, though, in a, in a spiritual sense, it might not be noticeable by everybody else. They might know that, might not know that you, you easily fall into that rut. You don't know what my ruts are necessarily. If you know me pretty well, you can probably guess what they are. But 
We, we don't know each other's rods. There's some, some private ones, some, some sensitive ones that we can't hide from everybody. The Bible's saying here, how can a young man stay on the path of purity? How can he deal with those, those hidden kinds of things? The Bible talks a lot about hidden sin. In Psalm 19, he talks about forgive my hidden faults. And then over in Proverbs, he says, he who, who re, uh, conceals rather his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. If you're sitting here this morning and somehow the Holy Spirit's going, yeah, that one, yeah, that one, little, little, little light bulbs going on, then the answer to that sin for you as a child of God is, is to confess it, to, to bring it before the Lord, to say, all right, I get it, that's a rut. I want to stay on the path. I don't want to get caught in a rut. My, my spiritual answer, my problem here, is how to stay on the path. And the answer is, I've got to seek you, God, with all of my heart. By hiding your word in my heart, which is what verse 11 says, and by learning your decrees, which is what verse 12 says. See, God's word is not a book on a shelf. It's not a, it's not a storybook that the preacher talks about on Sunday morning. It's a love letter. It's an instruction book. It's, a, it's an accounting. It's, a, it's an in-your-face occasionally. It's a, it's a sweet note sometimes. It's all those things. But it has to be in you. And the only way to get it in you is to listen to it or read it, to memorize it, to meditate it, to think on it. It has to be a part of our lives. God's Word has got to be more than just a reference book. It's got to be something like our phone. If we treated our Bible like we treat our phone, we would be so much better off. You don't go anywhere without this thing. There's not a moment. You go to the restroom. It's in your hand. I know it. You check your mail when you're in there. You, at night, it sits in your nightstand. First thing you do in the morning is check. How many times do you check your Facebook account? How many times do you check in with the email? How much, how much Twittering and, and, and tweeting and texting is going on in life? A whole bunch. God's word needs to be dealt with like that. An integral part of who we are. A little one we hide in our back pocket in. Another one we've got in our purse or in our car. A bigger one we study when we have our quiet time. One that we have on the dining room table so we can talk at dinner time. One that we have near our nightstand so we can read it when we get up and when we go to bed. How do, how do we deal with sin in our life? By being in God's word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word's like a flashlight. The more you read and study it, you go, in a, in a hidden little corner of your heart. And you thought you had all this tucked away. Nobody does about it. Here comes the spotlight. It's God's word that does that. And then when it's spotlighted, we can go, yeah, right, that's awful. I need to stop that. Please help me. Help me do this. Help me do that. Help me be accountable. The answer for dealing with sin for the child of God who's already come to Christ is to put God's word in a central place in our lives. Now, how do we do that on, on a practical, everyday kind of basis? Well, look at verse 13. It starts with a, a, a series of I, I wills. I, 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 I. You see them? There's one in 13, one in 14, one in 15, uh, 14 and 15, and one in 16. You see it? I something. Look down there in, that, in our passage in, in the bath. The big deal for dealing with God's sin 
are dealing with sin is God's word. And it, and it all runs around those, I will something. So the first one is, I will recount. To recount is to tell or to, or to, to give a, a report or to give details. So if I go on a trip, if you follow me on Facebook, I'm going to tell you everything about the trip. I'm going to show you pictures. I'm going to tell you the funny stuff that happened. I'm going to, give you, I'm going to try to you know, entice you with everything that went on on my trip. I'm recounting it for you. So you got married, you, you produced a, an album, it had pictures, you had videos, somebody took notes, you, you did everything. And anyone that came around for the next year, you recounted every aspect of that, of that ceremony. Recounting is the, is the telling about it, the details, the, the focusing on it. Well, the scripture said in verse 13, with my lips, I recount all the laws that have come from your mouth. Two things we need to recount, to give details about, to really be focused on, to report on. The first is our sin. He says in, uh, in Psalm 32, I put it in your notes, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The word confess in the Bible means to say the same thing about it that God does. To call it what it is. We have a tendency to make up little euphemisms for things. We tell a bold lie, and what do we say? Well, I had to tell a little, you know, a little, you know, a little, little, yeah. Well, if I were confessing it, I would call it the same thing God calls it. Sin. I lied. Well, I, I cheated. I didn't really cheat. I just didn't give the whole, you know, I had... When we confess it, we say, I cheated. I used to love it as a, a superintendent here at school when the kids would be sent to me for some horrible indiscretion, you know, horrible in small quotes. And so I'd say, the first thing I'd say, what did you do? And you, you, you almost had to cover your face because you're going to crack up at the story. They're going to minimize it. It's always going to be that guy's fault, the one standing next to him. And they're going to call it all kinds of interesting names. Everything but what it was. And after 10 or 15 minutes of getting through the story, finally I'd say, so, bottom line, you hit him, he hit you. Do I have that right? That's what the Holy Spirit does to us. After we do that, I wouldn't have my husband if he would just be who he was supposed to be, and then I would never, I can't be the parent I'm supposed to be because my children, you had my children, you wouldn't be a good parent either. God just kind of cuts through all that and goes, okay, let me get this straight. You lost your temper, right? You know, when we go, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have lost my temper if you, that is not an apology. The apology is, I lost my temper, and put a period. To confess is to say the same thing about something. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The problem is we won't call it what it is. If we have an issue with pornography, don't call it a wandering eye. Call it what it is. It's a sexual sin. Name it. You say, oh, that's for the men, Jerry. That's not for the women. No, that's not true. When we have a sin, call it what it is. You want your kids to do that so that you can work with them and they can stop it. The Holy Spirit is exactly the same way. If we want to deal with our sin, we have to start by saying, I get it. I recount it. I'm going to give you the details. I'm going to say what it is. It is sin. I, it's wrong. 
But don't stop there with your recounting. Go the next step and recount what God has done on your behalf. Because for every sin that causes you shame and guilt, and there's natural consequences, and it separates you in fellowship from the Lord, for every one of those that occurs, God is standing there going like this. Hello? Hello? I want back in. Can we have some time together? I'd love to be with you today. I love you. I care about you. I get it. I know all about it anyway. Let's talk about it. I had a friend years and years ago. I had a thing I was dealing with in my life. It wasn't a big deal in terms of the world, but in terms of me, it was whatever. And I, and I thought it was hiding it pretty good. And one day she just put her arm around me and said, Sherry, I think we really need to talk about it. She said, I've known about it for months. Why don't we just deal with it right now with the Lord? Come on. The, the, the joy that swelled and the release of being able to pray about it and think about it and bring it out and talk about it. And then she said, now I'm going to hold you accountable. Okay, thanks so much. It was like lancing a boil. You know, that which you think you got all covered up and dealt with, and nobody knows that it's not really an issue for you. Oh, yeah, it is. Otherwise, you wouldn't be thinking about it right now. I will recount not only the sin, but all of the wonderful things that God wants to do. God's righteous deeds are all around us. They're, they're in the wonder of, of our world. Watching a, an unbelievable sunset should remind you of how to deal with your sin. You say, well, I, where are you going from sunset to sin? Because God's got it all in control. That, that sun that floats down so perfectly in the, in the colors and the majesty of it all. There's somebody behind that. There's a, there's a creator and he's personal. He cares about Susie. He cares about Sherry. He cares about my issues. The things that he has planned for us. He, said, he says, um, recount what he's doing for you in your soul. So when the, when the psalmist writes in verse 13, how am I going to stay on this path? Well, I'm going to recount. That's the first thing. I'm going to tell the details, both about my sin and about my Savior. I'm going to talk about it. Don't go to the office today without telling somebody and recount the goodness of God. The second one is in verse 14. I will rejoice. I want to stay on this path. I want to deal with my sin. I will rejoice. What am I going to rejoice about? The word rejoice there means to express joy, but it's more exhilaration. It's like, it's like football game joy. Aren't you blessed? No, that's right. We talked last week. A lot of you are not sports fans. That's right. I forgot. Well, the joy of watching your team win something. Imagine your kid. There you go. T-ball, little league, something. Soccer team. And, and they win a, win a championship. How, how do you re respond at that moment? Are you standing over the side of this? Lovely, John. Really good. I, I like the way you passed there. That was excellent. Good job. Is that what you do? What do you look like? Nicole, what do you look like when your kids are scoring? You're screaming, you're hollering, you're jumping up and down, you're making noise. That's the word rejoice. See, we get to church and we go, I will rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And we go to a ball game and we go crazy. This word is the go crazy word. He says, express with joy. Rejoice of who God is. You rejoice over what God has done for you. If you're on the, on the low end ebb of spiritual energy this morning, go home, take a piece of paper out, and ask yourself this question. What has God done for me and my family in the last 30 days? And start writing. You'll write through lunch. 
Did your car start this morning? Did the garage door opener open it? What if it hadn't? What if the, the, the tire was flat? The engine went and didn't turn over. What if the kid actually could not find a shoe to wear? What if you went to your closet and there was nothing there? Make a list. What am I rejoicing over? What he's done for me. And rejoicing over what he's not done. He didn't condemn me. Psalm 32. Turn back a couple of chapters in Psalm 32. And look at verse 1 and 2. Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. I was listening to a preacher years and years and years ago who was talking about the condemnation that happens in the, in the mind and heart of a, a really anxious kind of person. And, and he was given an illustration of someone that, that, that died and went to heaven. And the first thing they did is they ran over to Jesus and they started a little conversation that kind of goes like this. Lord, I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, it was terrible. And I know it wasn't. I repeated it. It was just, I, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And the Lord Jesus is kind of standing there looking. What, what exactly are you talking about? What? He said, well, let's go to the book of life and let's, let's look in your chapter. And so flip, 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 and find Sherry Whirl. And he said, okay, let's look, look here. And I went, well, it was, you know, during that period, in, you know, 1986. And he said, okay, 1986. Uh-huh. Well, you know, November to December. Well, there's nothing here, Sherry. In fact, what's here is the blood that I shed on the cross. Can't say anything else. That's how we are. If we don't remember what he's done for us. Yes, I remember it and I need to deal with it and I need to forsake it and I need to get it behind me. But God is in the forgiving business. When I rejoice, when I'm jumping up and down, I am jumping up and down because of what he's done for me and what he's not had to do. Blessed is the man who's, who's sinned the Lord does not count against him. Wow. That's where we're talking about that. And then the last one, or not the last one, look at verse 15. Another I will something. I, I will meditate. I will meditate on your precepts. Meditation is a, an interesting word, and it's bantered around in our society a lot right now. Um, there, was a, there was a joke running around that, you know, the, the best meditation was the one that meditated on your belly button. I don't know how you meditate on your belly button, but apparently you can. Um, but that, that's not what we're talking about. Meditation here is the act of looking into God's word, asking the spirit of God to illuminate something in your mind and heart. And, and there was a practice in the third and fourth century some monastic monks that were hiding away and spent their entire days doing this. They didn't run households like you and I do. But nonetheless, it was a practice that came to be known as Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. It's just a, a, a Latin word. And it really had, you know, five, five steps to it. This is the process of meditating. The psalmist is telling us in 119 that I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways as a way to deal with my sin. Well, what does meditate mean? So Lectio Divina is a great way to start. And I, I just put a few notes down. You can look it up. 
Google it, it'll give you a lot more details. But here's what it essentially is. You sit down and you read God's Word. You read it slowly, you repeat it, you, re- you read it repetitively, and you're asking the question as you listen with your heart, I, I, I want to hear you. Lord, out of this passage, what do you want to say to me? What is there here in God's Word for me today? That's step number one. Step number two is you stop reading and you start reflecting. I, I, I use the phrase, you chew on it. You just sit there. And you think about what you just read. You're asking yourself some personal questions. And then you're listening. Holy Spirit, what is there in that passage that I've just been reading over and over again that that applies to me today in my situation? And you wait for an answer. And I promise you the Holy Spirit will give you an answer. Your response then is, oh, okay, yeah, mm, I get it. Third step, you begin to pray about that. You talk it over with the Lord. You essentially say to the Lord, okay, let's discuss it. Let's not argue about it. Let's not act like it's not there. Let's not try to cover it up. Let's not fake it. Let's not try to be somebody we're not. Let's just be open. Okay. I'm reading that. I need to deal with something. Let's talk about it. I'm I'm having trouble with my temper. My kids are really getting on my nerves. I have a short fuse. This is something I ought to deal with. Discuss it with them. You pray about it. You talk about it openly. Step number four, then you sit back down and you wait. Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to help me? What steps should I take? Where should I start? Who should I tell? What should I not do? What should I start doing? Contemplating. And then in the end, you're ready to get up and try to practice and put into practice what you heard. You said, you essentially said, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to go do that. That's not a five-minute exercise. That's not, that's not two verses and a cup of coffee. That's a little bit of time. That's a sit-down. Everybody's gone. The house is now quiet. Or it's lunchtime at work or whatever. And you get out God's Word and you talk to Him about an area in your life where there is sin and you're struggling. And you go through these, this process. You read some passages very carefully and slowly. Then you reflect on it, chew on it, ask him to intervene, to draw your attention to some things. Then you talk to him about it in open prayer. Then you sit and wait on him to highlight what the next step is. That's a whole lot more than just, you know, uh, Jesus is calling one verse, I'm done. See, if we want to deal with sin in our lives, we have to be proactive. We have to want to deal with it. We have to want to stop it or start it. God's going to give you a way to do that. One of them is meditation. Look at verse 16, though. He says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Notice that he uses a lot of synonyms here. Ways and decrees and statutes and, and laws and so on. And in verse 16, he says, I delight. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I delight. The word delight means to to bend in towards something, to be inclined in a certain direction, to take pleasure in something. A friend of mine brought some some food by the house yesterday, and it was from Los Calendrinas, and it was very kind of her to bring dinner, and it was all there. But as she was, you know, big, big sack sitting on the counter, as she was talking about how she wanted to bless us and bring this meal and whatever, what was going on in my heart is, I wonder if there's any chicken taquitos in there. 
chicken, chicken tortillas, guacamole, chicken tortillas. I don't want any enchiladas, none of their silly tacos, I don't want a burrito, not the little ones, not the big ones. I want chicken tortillas. Are there any chicken tortillas in there? I was inclined, I was delighting in the possibility that there would be chicken tortillas in there. And praise God, there were. Yes, thank you very much. What do we delight in? Well, we're supposed to be delighting in God's word, delighting in your decrees. This book is supposed to be a delight, not a punishment. Not a, you got to be kidding me. i got to read the these and the thous. Um, I was talking about Great Britain earlier. I'll give you one more interesting story. A, a, a time period, I'm not sure exactly when it started or stopped. But there was an influx of, of uh, people coming from Muslim countries that were trying to get into Great Britain on an asylum. And they were, they were saying, hey, I've become a believer in Jesus Christ. I can't live where I was before. Please let me in your country. And the asylum judges were having trouble figuring out, well, how do we know who really has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and needs this, this special visa? So they devised a test, 150 questions about God's word. And the, and the logic was, if they could pass the test about God's word, they probably were a Christian. So what if I pass that test out this morning? How, how are you going to do well, if you're saying, mm, I know David, Daniel, Lions Den, got that one now. Uh, Genesis starts it, Revelation's at the end, okay. Uh, so how about Hosea? What comes to mind when we see the book of Hosea? How about the fig picker? Who was the prophet that was the fig picker? These are very important things, by the way. They're not. You get my point? If we aren't in God's word, if we're not delighting in it, if it's not like our phone, something we reach for, grab for, look into, make a part of our everyday life, however are we going to stay on the path? If we've got no roots, sin's just going to knock us around. We're going to be a people that are so involved in everything else except the peace that passes all understanding. The bottom line is, if we're going to stay on God's right path, if we're going to deal with sin, we've got to have deep, deep roots into God's Word. Thy Word have I hid in my heart. I've read it. I've studied it. I've thought about it. I've memorized it. I've applied it. And I'm ready to do business in my world. There is a big problem, and it's not social injustice, although that's certainly pending. We have a big problem, and it's not the pandemic, and it's not the political issues, and it's not a bunch of other stuff. Our big problem is our standing with sin, either initially because we've never come to Christ. And if you're sitting here this morning and you fall into that category, please do me a favor. Don't go home. Just hang around. Nobody will know. I'm, I'm going to hang up here in front. Come up and just, just say, hey, Sherry, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can answer that question. If I die today, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. Let me just take 20 minutes. And let me introduce you to the Savior. A gal the other night on Facebook sent me a note. She was responding to something that I, I posted. And she said, Sherry, such and such, and she, she answered it. And she said, you know why I know that? Because of that day in Bible study. 
She sat right about where you were. She said to me at the end of Bible study, I, I don't know that guy you're talking about. I've been in church all my life. I sat right back there about the fourth few back. Took my Bible out and spent 20 minutes with her. And today she's gloriously saved. So don't go home today. You don't know. And for the rest of us that know him, don't fake it out. Don't act like you don't have sin. Don't act like you don't have issues. You do. I do. Let's deal with them. Let's treat God's word in the way that it should be treated. And if you're new to that and you go, golly, do I start in Leviticus? No. <laughs> you do not start in Leviticus. Go home and start in the book of Mark. It's only 16 chapters. You knock it out in one, one setting. Get in the Bible study. Another one besides ours. Begin to treat God's word. When you got this, you either read the manual, which most of us did not, but you, you went up to a friend and you said, so, so how, do, how do I get to my eight whatever in here? Or you went to your kid and said, how do I get in here? Find somebody that can help you do that with God's word. Because otherwise, we're going to fall off the path. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in this old song. These eight verses, the stanza of faith, is all about being rooted in you and how to deal with our sin. The world doesn't want to talk about sin. It wants to talk about everything else. But I was impressed, Lord, that it was an issue in my heart and in the hearts of people around me. So help us to apply your word today. We pray in Jesus' name.